This is Robotic Disclosure, the program that reveals everything you want to know about robotic surgery, robotic technology, and how to run a best practice robotic program for your hospital, your surgeons, and your patients. And now, here's your host, Josh Feldstein. Our guest on today's podcast is Jane Bird, Vice President of Surgical Services for UNC Healthcare. Now, when you talk about real-world experience, you are totally describing Jane and her 40 years of surgical services wisdom and expertise. At UNC, Jane oversees more than 500 FTEs with oversight over nursing, quality, outcomes, operational and financial program success, and more. And if you add 50 operating rooms and tens of thousands of patients a year, you quickly see why we're so excited to have Jane Bird on the program today. Hi, Jane. How are you today? Hey, how are you? Jane, one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about uh, in our work together is the alignment between administration and surgeons. And of course, we we understand that uh, it's a huge part of making a robotic program run well. If you can speak to some of the challenges and also some of the successes that you've had in your years of experience uh, at UNC uh, and and uh, elsewhere, uh, how would you categorize some of the most important elements of getting good alignment uh, to happen between administration and surgeons? I think a great deal of it has to do with the um, position of the periop leader, you know, many organizations have directors or managers and largely depending on size and then more of the academic facilities have VPs. And I think that makes a huge difference in your ability to influence the conversations. You know, the worst thing I can say about my colleagues in the C-suite is, you know, not unlike many others, they don't know what they don't know. And while much of the work of periop seems to happen magically, um, they have a hard time sometimes understanding these evolving and rapidly changing technologies. And so it requires a fair amount of vigilance, I'd say, to, you know, keep uh, carrying the message, um, beating your head against the wall in order to make some of these conversations stick. And especially as the technology evolves and, you know, you just spent a couple of million dollars and now we need to spend two more and, oh, the check is written or the lease is signed and now guess what? We need to find two million more. Um, part of that, of course, is driven by the success of your program, by the engagement of the physicians, um, but a great deal of it with the administrative colleagues, I think, is about securing and managing the acquisition um, and, of course, then putting your money where your mouth is around utilization and team building and making the program start to come together in a way that either produces cases uh, generates attention or both and uh, starts to move the needle on other efficiencies that you can obtain in the periop environment. Do you think that having the C-suite poke their head into the operating room and, and take a look at uh, cases uh, from time to time is helpful in advancing that understanding and that conversation? I absolutely do. Uh, I think, I mean, it's one thing to make that suggestion um, many of those guys and girls are just too busy, and that's a fact, given our current healthcare culture and changing uh, and shifting paradigms. However, uh, a great many of them want to know, and they will take the initiative themselves, and I think that's priceless. I think there's also a challenge for many of those folks. You know, they don't want to pass out. 
they're, you know, I think some of them are just anxious in those environments and they don't want to embarrass themselves. So there's a reluctance to say, okay, you take care of it. But at the same time, if they are, will make the time and effort, get in there, see what it's like for the team, for the surgeons, for the technology and how we manage it, it, it really is a, an immensely valuable experience for them and also a validating one that the goals of the organization are aligned with uh, the goals of the surgeons. And sometimes, you know, those simple little endeavors just make it click for them when they see it all come together in a miraculous way that, oh, guess what, in the center of all that is a patient. That is a is a very very challenging uh, scenario to to uh, make happen. I know in in a lot of institutions, and and part of it is what you've just described is that there really is a reluctance on the part of uh, some administrators to uh, expose themselves to a real perioperative environment. They wouldn't admit that it's challenging to them emotionally, but it is. Well, there's something magical about putting on the mask and going and changing clothes and going behind the double doors. You know, it has an element of sacred ground, and I appreciate that. You know, as much as we try to control guests in our environment, that sometimes they feel like a guest, so they don't want to. But, you know, at the same time, it's understanding how the technology works, understanding what it gets them, even though they may not have a comparative frame of reference. Um, You know, getting the C-suite to embrace the notion that robots really are here to stay, I think, is all a part of that continuation of uh, message that they need to see and hear and uh, appreciate live. So it sounds like you're describing even getting the C-suite excited about some of the technology. And and I know that uh, part of the challenge is, as you described it in the setup, they're busy writing big checks. They're looking at things like efficiency. They're concerned about uh, meeting the needs of surgeons who have access questions or challenges, who are looking at this as uh, uh, wanting to play with their new technology and have access to the new the new toys. So there's this sort of this this just almost disgruntled uh, uh, position that some administrators take around all of this. And yet, what you're describing is almost bridging that gap by bringing them inside the sacred space, as you described it, and piquing their interest and getting them excited almost about the, the, the possibilities of what this technology can deliver. And, and if you can make that happen, well, then it almost ignites a whole different sense of, of acceptance and, and, and embrace uh, of the technology to, to a certain extent and the program as a whole. Would, would you disagree or agree with that? I would totally agree. I mean, I think part of it is also driven by uh, a working partnership on the part of periop leaders and the surgeon champions for robot. You know, surgeons love to uh, be in the CEO's office and articulate their needs and hope they come together. And, you know, periop leaders, VPs especially, love to go to the capital budget table and articulate their needs and hope they get support. But rarely do they come together in the right way in front of the CEO or the senior leaders uh, with the same amount of uh, passion and program development. Um, you know, there's so many challenges with access to our schedules, with creating the structure, with creating the process, and I think it's hard for some of our colleagues to understand all those steps along the way, but it's so important in making it come together and work for both the hospital and the surgeons, and you can't overlook that as you walk, work through these uh, purchase choices or lease options um. and the decision-making that surrounds that. 
It's a, it's a really great insight. Can you speak a little bit uh, to the challenges that are faced uniquely by academic medical centers when it comes to running a robotic program? That's a whole different set of challenges, isn't it? It surely is. And, you know, it, shame on me if I don't miss the opportunity to uh, point out the vast differences both in climate and culture of community hospitals versus academic. And, you know, academic is special. Uh, you know, it, it's been really eye-opening to have been in this environment and see the interaction at a different level. And it, it's really priceless when you start to think about uh, the work we're doing and advancing uh, the science and promoting um, better outcomes, you know, especially in this age of uh, value-based medicine, if you will. But the medical center, I think, also um, has its, ex- well, more of the academic environment has its special challenges around the residents, the interns, the fellows, and how their training works. Um, you know, being a bit on the outside, having spent most of my career in a community hospital, I have to say I was a little astonished at the lack of um, program definition around the residents and their learning. I mean, they're the first to show up and do the case. You know, they've worked the patients up. They're, they have the passion. They're really well engaged in the process. But so many times they haven't had time on the a robot or haven't had um, lab time or simulation time that would enable them to be more successful and more productive in the operating room. And having been on the community hospital side, I would say that many of those folks, once they hit the streets in private practice, really are not able to take the instrument and take off. Um, there's still a pretty steep learning curve, and I don't think it's lack of knowledge, lack of uh, interest, I think it's purely about time. And therefore, then, the academic medical centers have to create some structure, some process around that simulation, around those requirements, around expectations and practice times, as well as then working with their chairs to get the necessary clinical time and practice so that when they actually are graduating and departing into another academic environment or into a community hospital, that they really can hit the ground running. And that's hard to achieve with given the demands on education programs. Those are some very serious and steep challenges for the reasons that you've mentioned. And I'll throw a few others at you. I love your response to this. Part of the issue is efficiency. And when you think about running a robotic program in today's culture, you talk about value-based medicine, case time and case efficiency is critical. Uh, the uh, minimization of supply utilization, the reduction of variability in, in reposable use and so forth, this is crucial. And yet, in an environment where you have learners, uh, efficiency goes out the window. And so how do you uh, really reconcile an environment where you want to bring the, the residents uh, forward in a, in a real-world environment so that they can hit the ground running and yet at the same time manage a program with cost-effectiveness and efficiency in mind um, at the same time. That seems like a, a pretty big challenge. Well, it is, but at the same time, we have to remember and acknowledge that you know we're cutting these people loose. Uh, so the problems that we create in the lack of educational support translates 
and is perpetuated into whatever environment they go in next. So I think we in academic centers in particular have to do a better job with those things I talked about, with the simulation, with the, the basic requirements, you know, with getting them console time outside of the OR, with getting them console time even when there's a patient in the OR, but having required hands-on um, hand motor coordination opportunities well away from a patient, but in a way that perhaps can be simulated on a not real patient, but at the same time just to develop that competency. I mean, we're blessed in many ways by the um, uh, changing mindset of many of those in our medical schools and residency programs. I mean, they're a younger generation. They grew up on these tools, and they, they can adapt very, very quickly, and it's amazing and very impressive. But they still do need a little time to get good at it. And um, so we need to support that in a different way, you know, make the tools available to them, put some structure in place around requirements, so that they achieve those and someone's looking over their shoulder to make sure they do. And then when they get in the operating room, they will start to appreciate why that efficiency is important. And, you know, while, yes, these are learning environments, they want to do well too. And all of those things, I think, translate, even though it's a delicate balance with the um, other educational demands that they have and the time constraints that they have, there's still an opportunity to do that better. And I think we owe that to them and to our patients as well as to our future learners. Thank you. I think that, you know, the point that you're making relative to simulation is something we should probably spend another couple of moments on because one of the things that makes robotics unique, as you know, is the fact that there is a simulating environment and technology that allows for the surgeons who are learning to challenge themselves on many different levels without having to be in a live environment with a patient. And that's a huge, huge difference. Um, and yet we see uh, uh, nationally that there's just not enough reliance on, on simulation and it's not taken full advantage of. And certainly in, a, in an, an environment where you have uh, residents, uh, the simulator becomes a really big part of the overall program. Wouldn't you agree? Totally. And, you know, again, back to the um, conversations with the C-suite, they also have to understand that this is part of our program development, you know, to buy a robot and not add those tools for learning um, is a waste of money. You know, people really, whether you're in a community or an academic environment, those opportunities uh, are important. I mean, certainly the surgeons go and get... Uh, uh, you know, a fair amount of experience in labs and, you know, in partnership with the robotic companies. But at the same time, it's different when you're back in your environment. And having those options available, I think, is hugely critical to that ongoing success. I mean, it adds cost, of course, to the program, but it pays for itself in the long run. Let me ask you a question now about the more mature surgeons. So we've talked about the, the learners and we've talked about the residents and the fellows. Let's talk about the surgeons that have been doing robotic surgery for years and their case volumes can be uh, modest or they can be high volume surgeons. And now we introduce the concept of data transparency. And you know, I know you and I have talked uh, quite a bit about data transparency over the years, Jane. And one of the questions I would have for you is when it comes to motivating surgeons to improve their performance metrics, whether it's operational, whether it's clinical, or whether it's financial, uh, how would you describe the 
the process of achieving what we'll define as data transparency with uh, uh, your surgeons that you've worked with over the years? Well, I think people know it intuitively. And in fact, as you know, metrics are becoming standard fare in organizations who are growing and who are looking at value-based care, who are looking at population health, who are looking at managing their cost and perhaps as importantly, managing their programs. But all that being said, um, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about earlier and should have perhaps is the importance of a robotic committee. Uh, the data integrity is always a challenge and, you know, having a uh, robotic coordinator, I think, is a huge step in that process. Even from day one, someone who can manage the program, someone who can start to review the data, start to see the trends and consider um, the outliers and then start to give surgeons back some of that information and then together come together with, you know, what I'll loosely even call a multidisciplinary group to start to define those metrics for that individual program. I mean, certainly there are an, any number of agreed upon national metrics and benchmarks that you could uh, adopt. But what's important, I think, to modifying behavior and engaging surgeons is looking at their own metrics or their own outcomes and creating their own metrics. What things do you want to monitor? What things are important to you and to this organization and to your uh, program, your practice, your patients? And um, engaging them in those conversations and in that ownership of the program, I think, makes the biggest difference. I mean, certainly, to your point, Josh, the data, you know, in hospitals is always a challenge. And the bigger you are, the harder it is to manage. And not any of us have enough resources to um, provide the oversight necessary to have good, clean data at the outset. So, again, it helps to have someone who's looking at that with you, who's starting to, you know, clean it up behind the scenes or at least figure out where the problems are so that when you start to produce and share meaningful data that it really is that. Surgeons love to discredit the organization's data. And, you know, historically hospitals have been so poor at managing data but now with electronic records, with, you know, uh, changes in the way we deliver care, we have to look at these things. And so our systems have improved just as our analysis has. And along those lines, however, you know, it, 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 it's a work in progress and it takes some time to get to a point that it's believable, manageable and serviceable data. Jane, you've just really summarized a number of really critical points. Let me circle back on one of them, and that is finding a way to make the feedback of data, this transparent uh, data experience for the surgeon, personal, but personal in a really positive way. You talked about uh, growth from the standpoint of efficiency. You talked about uh, uh, growth of pra the practice of the, of the surgeon or the, or the, of the group. Uh, so the idea of trying to take data and transform it into something that's personally applicable and not just this globalization or these gattas, uh, which makes it feel very onerous, uh, that's a big shift. And when surgeons start feeling uh, excited about the data because it's, it's advancing his or her ability to become a better surgeon and to advance her, his or her practice, I'm assuming that you see them uh, um, align with the, the process of data transparency in a different way. Totally correct. I mean, surgeons, if anything, regardless of gender, regardless of age, regardless of specialty, are competitive. And they all want to look good. And so certainly they react to the data if, in particular, someone doesn't look good, which is all the more reason you need the process. You need 
to build the efficiencies. I mean, clearly adding a robot initially adds some time to your surgical case to the patient in the room time, and no one wants to deal with that, not to mention some of these constrained environments where adding that surgical time and that setup time actually does um, impugn someone else and their ability to, to get onto the schedule. So, you know, it's laden with its own challenges even just by introducing the technology. But at the same time, um, you know, that surgeon participation in that process so that you're looking at the variability um, I think it's huge. I mean, one of the things the data really starts to show you is perhaps there's going to always be normal organic variability in specialties, but at the same time, cost case, outcomes, you know, length of stay, operating times, um, even, you know, quality as a generic term should all be evaluated at some point. And, you know, that, if anything, and if it's structured appropriately with the right physician champions the right engagement, the right data, then you start to have that even playing field. And I think we more recently, in spite of having had robots quite a few years, more recently this has come together in a more constructive, validating way. And I think the surgeons appreciate how hard it's been to get the data correct, but also how hard we've worked collectively on, um, you know, uh, creating access for them. You know, our, our goal was never to restrict their practice, but rather to engage them in, in the outcomes that we are expected to monitor on our own. And suddenly now they have a role in that process. So if I can take three steps back from what you've just described, Jane, one of the, the takeaways that I hear over and over in, in your uh, uh, descriptions today is committee structure is governance, is policy and procedures, you know, this infrastructure that allows all of this work, this important work that you're describing to take place. Uh, maybe uh, you could speak a little bit to the importance of committee structure and policy and procedure. And I'd like you to perhaps address this from two perspectives. One is from the perspective of the uh, administrative uh, um, um, viewpoint with a program that's been struggling along for some period of time. And then the other would be, what would you say to a, a C-suite that's considering moving into robotics for the first time when it comes to infrastructure and governance and committee structure? Wow. Um, an organization just starting and embarking on this journey, you know, I'm tempted to say run, don't walk. Um, because I do think as I said earlier, robots are here to stay, and we all need to understand and accept that and figure out the steps along the way. But I would also caution everyone to develop that process. Getting an engaged surgeon is perhaps the easy part. Finding the money may be the second easiest part. But the hard part is building that team of uh, professionals that are looking at the entire program that are helping, you know, to start a program without appropriate credentialing, for example, wouldn't make any sense. I mean, and some of that goes back to the conversation we had about residents and simulation time and opportunities to get uh, hands-on with a robot before, uh, extended hands-on, not just going to the particular class that they offer, but bringing all that together um, together with the equipment, you know, making purchase decisions uh, together and also looking at, you know, the kinds of procedures you're doing and why. Uh, people do have to learn, and sometimes learning on some of the simpler cases is the right thing to do, even though 
you know, it, it seems foreign to some that lap colleagues or appendectomies might be done with a robot. But it's those kinds of things that I think, you know, will slowly start to build the systems thinking, if you will. Um, and sharing that data, again, I go back to that point, becomes so important because I have known surgeons who did a great job with the robot, with the robot excuse me, but never impacted length of stay. So it, they need to understand and embrace the notion that it also requires behavior modification on their part. Now, no, no one wants to put a patient at risk, certainly. But at the same time, um, if the robot lives up to its name, the efficiencies that you build, the lack of tissue damage uh, that you're controlling, the bleeding you're controlling, those things do translate into something that, you know, that the uh, C-suite loves to hear, and that is a reducing length of stay. So you almost can't extricate one of these conversations from the other. It really is that continuum of care and building that interdisciplinary team of surgeons, of nursing, of executives, of um, even data analysts that can come together and, you know, just put the information out there and start to deal with all that you have in front of you and then start to make some recommendations, some suggestions to look at trends, to see where you really are, I think is the biggest thing in growing your program internally and to that end uh, that seems like a large order before you ever start the program but in many ways that infrastructure uh, vision has to be in place before you can effectively turn a robot on. On that note I think we're going to conclude because I have nothing to add to that summary. (laughs) (laughs) Well I had a couple of notes myself that I didn't even get in there you know one of them was brace yourself for disruption and uh you know, that I, I think is something that the clinical people don't realize, that the surgeons don't realize, because they're accustomed to new tools and new technology, and they're going to do the right thing for the patient. And then all of a sudden, you've got a team who's like, oh, yeah, we can do this, but they don't realize how disruptive it is. And if you don't have that process and have your finger on the pulse, it becomes all the more disruptive. And you and I have lived through that at Rex, and I'm sure you and countless other places, but at the same time, there's so many opportunities if you do it right. And this is the second time that I realize we haven't done it right. And I hope this will help others um, start to realize how big it really is. Thank you. And you said there were two points. What was your other point? Physician retention. You know, again, um, the C-suite often uh, likes to think they can't afford some of these things. But, you know, our market in particular is extremely competitive um, for patients as well as physicians. And physician retention is what drives your overall business. I mean, without surgeons, you don't have a surgery program. Um, somewhere in there is the patient experience that is so, so important. You know, patients read about these things in journals. You know, we're blessed in this market with a very, with a generally educated population. And so they ask a lot of really good questions and are pursuing in many of the community hospitals at least some of these alternative approaches and sometimes they underestimate the impact but at the same time they're asking and so we have an obligation both to our patients to help them understand and offer the technology for them as well as for our patients to help to get together with the excuse me our physicians to get together with patients and make those decisions in the right way Um, so it really goes full circle thank you great stuff We've been speaking with Jane Bird, Vice President of Surgical Services for UNC Healthcare. If you have any questions for Jane Bird or would like to share comments with us, we'd love to hear from you at roboticdisclosure at gmail.com. 
You've been listening to Robotic Disclosure. Robotic Disclosure is produced by Kava Robotics International, helping hospitals create profitable, high-quality, best-practice robotic programs in the U.S. and around the world since 2011. Visit kava-robotics.com.